0: North American Soccer League Players Association Association strike goes on and on, having trouble tonight. Many of the teams without its regulars. Now, in the wake of the strike, here's how one NASL team, the Rochester Lancers, prepared for its game against Tulsa.
1: Rochester Lancers chairman of the board and part owner, Charlie Sciano, spent the last few minutes before the flight to Tulsa, checking on players the club hastily recruited for tonight's game against the Roughnecks. Only two regular team members reported to the airport. The rest of the squad was completed with amateurs and former NASL players, including former Washington diplomats and New York Cosmos goalie Kurt
0: Kuykendall. Lancer's coach, Dragon Don Popovich, was not optimistic about the strike or the game. I'm really between the owners and the players. I I sympathize both sides. I think the players uh, Fighting for their for their side of the story, and the owners is hurt because they're losing too much money already right now. And uh, I'm just between. I'm the coach. I uh, have to run the team. If they want me to be in Tulsa, I'll be there. One of those who joined the strike is star goalie Shep Messing, the former Cosmos goalie who recently signed a $125,000 contract with Rochester. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast. Devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. I thank you, Corey Coates, and I thank you out there in podcast listener land. My name is Tim Hanlon, and this is Good Seats Still Available, our curious little podcast that is focused on what used to be in professional sports. I appreciate to no end you uh, going out of your way to find us and download us and listen to us. And hopefully this week, Uh, We'll keep you interested and entertained and maybe even a little education along the way. God forbid, as we get back into the old North American Soccer League, and we're going to dial that way back machine to uh, just about uh, 40 years ago this week uh, in 1979 NASL. uh, And we're going to talk about a very uh, interesting and oft forgotten little speed bump in the history of that league with our guest, our return guest, Steve Holroyd. And it was basically... Uh, the NASL players going on strike, well, sort of, and we'll get into that with Steve in a couple of seconds, against the ownership of the uh, of the North American Soccer League, which at the time, the league, was uh, very much, not only in its descendants, but arguably near its zenith in terms of uh, its influence, its uh, growth, its power, if you will, uh, in the American sports landscape. I mean, this is a league that was near death's doorstep in 1971-72, uh, it was just a handful of teams and uh, through sheer will, as we've explored in other uh, conversations of uh, people like Phil Woosnam and other players and owners that uh, saw more future for this league than death. And what a reward in, in the seven or eight years since then, because circa 1979, uh, you had a, a league that was now in 24 major markets across uh, the United States and in Canada. You had a league that now finally had another Long term, or at least supposedly was going to be a long term national broadcast television contract with ABC. Uh, you had uh, gigantic crowds in lots of different places, New York, of course, prime among them by selling out Giant Stadium on a uh, somewhat regular basis, but also large crowds in places like Tampa Bay and Seattle and uh, Minnesota, just a whole bunch of places. I mean, the, you know, it, you could make the argument in 78 79. Uh, that the uh, North American Soccer League had indeed arrived on the national uh, professional sports scene. And many things seem to be going all its way for sure, but uh, we're going to get into one of the little speed bumps that um you know maybe was uh, kind of maybe the first real sort of uh, piece of evidence that uh, maybe uh, this uh, North American Soccer League outdoor uh, extravaganza was not long for this life. Uh, Certainly, there were a lot of other things that conspired uh, to uh, ultimately end uh, the NASL's uh, existence uh, at the end of the 1984 season. By the way, plenty of episodes in our library at GoodSeatStillAvailable.com to go into all of those things, and there will be plenty more, I assure you. But one of those uh, that really kind of broke into the open is what our conversation with Steve Holroyd is going to be about, and that is a strike uh, by the players of the NASL against the owners of said league. And um, I think, you know, not only was it uh, an interesting and somewhat weakened uh, job action, as we'll get into, uh, it was also, though, really kind of uh, the first sort of real, I think, uh, mainstream understanding of perhaps the somewhat shaky underpinnings of what this league was all about, despite all of its uh, rapid growth. I mean, you you can't gross as rapidly as the NASL did uh, without sort of uh, realities catching up. And we're going to get into some of the various uh, interesting uh, stories and idiosyncrasies, uh, the way this strike played out. And I think, importantly, how this issue of labor relations uh, continues uh, to be a very relevant topic and uh, unavoidable uh, discussion and issue, uh, not only in pro sports generally, but soccer specifically. You may remember in 2015, Major League Soccer had a fit and start with labor relations, and uh, MLS is uh, probably going to go through the same again once the 2019 season is over. So, in many respects, everything old is new again. Uh, it'll be very interesting, especially given how MLS itself has grown. I think we're now approaching what is it, 28 now franchises uh, in Major League Soccer. Yes, it's still single entity, uh, and but there is major debate. I mean, it is not a week that goes by on Twitter or in these other social media fora. That uh, there's a d- discussion about how just how healthy uh, Major League Soccer really is. Uh, where are you know uh, how many teams are profitable? Attendance certainly in the early part of the spring of this season, uh, not great. If you look at the uh, actual pictures and the broadcasts, <laughs> a lot of empty seats out there yet. You know you've got brand new stadiums coming up in Minnesota and some great crowds and 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 sellouts in places like Portland and and see, I mean you just you know it's it's sort of a hit or miss, up and down kind of. You know, success story, and and there's no argument that MLS has been successful. uh, The fact that it's been around for you know 20 years and some to bring and and establish and uh, root uh, professional soccer uh, in this country. But it'll be very interesting to sort of see how the economics come out in this uh, uh, next round of labor conversations that come up after this season. But you know, let's uh, prepare for all of that with our our great conversation uh, with our return guest Steve Holroyd. Uh, Coming up, talking about the old North American Soccer League strike and the uh, things that came from that, both uh, immediately as well as now, perhaps uh, in the months to come with uh, today's version of pro soccer in the United States uh, in just a few seconds. So please stay tuned for that. You're going to learn a lot, as I did. And we appreciate you doing so. And uh, we also appreciate you trying all of our great sponsors. Uh, And uh, this week, I just want to quickly highlight our friends at Audible. And uh, if you go to audibletrial.com slash good seats, you're going to get a chance to, uh, to, to taste and enjoy the magic that is audiobooks. And uh, if you've never tried an audiobook this is a, uh, a tremendous way to do so it's basically a no risk uh, proposition because if you go to auto uh, excuse me if you go to audibletrial.com slash good seats he says uh, you're gonna get one free audiobook download to enjoy uh, for the life of your device so if even if you cancel which you can do at any time it is yours to keep that audiobook as long as your device lives and why not I mean again it's a risk-free proposition and there are over I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of titles. Uh, to choose from. And if you love soccer, which I would imagine a lot of our uh, listeners this week do, uh, there are a couple of great books there. There's a tons of them, but uh, I'll, I'll just call out two that uh, might be a great way to burn that credit uh, that you get by going to audibletrial.com slash good seats. One is our great friend, uh, although he doesn't know it because we never really met before. that not, not true. I actually met him when I was a kid. Uh, he, of course, wouldn't remember. His name is Pelé, and uh, we hope he's doing well. We know he had a little uh, little health scare a couple of weeks ago while traveling in Paris. Uh, but his uh, autobiography, or his second autobiography, it's called Pele, Why Soccer Matters. And it's uh, it's written in conjunction with Brian Winter, and it is narrated by Sean Pratt. It gets into Pele's uh, story, his history, and frankly, a bit of a treatise on why soccer, uh, not only important to him, but also important to sports in general. You can use your credit for that book, but if you don't want to do that, well, why not uh, use your credit for The Men in Blazers, Encyclopaedia uh, Encyclopedia, Encyclopedia Blazer Tanaka, yeah, you say that three times fast. The suboptimal guide to soccer, America's sport of the future since 1972, and uh, not only is it written by Michael Davies and Ryan, the guys from the Men in Blazers podcast, but it is narrated by them, Roger Bennett, and Michael Davies uh, narrate their audiobook. I'll put audiobook in quotes for that because it's almost like listening into their show uh, for an extended, almost four-hour period of time, and it is a hoot. It is a blast. Uh, and again, that's Men in Blazers' uh, Encyclopedia Blazer Tanica, And uh, you can use your credit at audibletrial.com slash goodseats for that book, if you want, for God's sakes. And again, it's not just soccer, but there's tons and tons and tons of other uh, genres, uh, nonfiction and fiction, you name it. There are hundreds, literally, of thousands, literally, of titles to choose from at Audible. And that's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Get your free download Uh, Enjoy the audiobook experience. Again, cancel at any time. And by doing so, you will give a few shekels of love uh, to your favorite Wink Wink Nod Nod podcast here at Good Seats still available. All right. So I am not going to waste any more time. We're going to slide nice and smoothly into our very entertaining and interesting conversation with Steve Holroyd as we get into the various uh, intricacies of the North American Soccer League players strike. Or, Or was it really? back in 1979. And here's our conversation coming up. Why don't you remind our audience, Steve, uh, who you are, what you do as your uh, as your day job, which I think ironically uh, qualifies you for uh, the grist for our conversation this afternoon.
1: Yes, uh, my name is Steve Holroyd. I am currently a director with the Society for American Soccer History Um, I've been researching and writing about soccer history for about the past 25 years and I've been collecting and documenting it even long before that. Uh, My day job, which as you noted dovetails nicely into today's topic, is uh, I am a labor attorney in Philadelphia representing unions with the firm of Jennings Sigmund. Uh, I've been doing that for 21 years, 22 years now, and the eight years or seven years prior to that, uh, I worked with the National Labor Relations Board, which is another party which will figure rather prominently in today's discussion.
0: Absolutely. Well, what, what we're um, we're kind of leading up to is that uh, by the time this airs, uh, you will have published a piece uh, that uh, harkens back to a time in uh, the North American Soccer League's uh, existence, in particular, specifically the season being 1979. Now, this is as a scene set. We might want to kind of start with. Uh, a bit of sort of where the NASL was in terms of its success arc, given that, you know, the league had obviously sort of seen its ghosts in the earlier part of the decade. You want to kind of just give our audience a bit of a, a hint of sort of what this league was circa 1978, heading into the beginning of the 1979 season. You could make the argument that uh, if it wasn't at its apex, it was certainly near that sort of zone of its greatest success uh, in its history at that point.
1: Right, I would agree. I mean, 79 was pro- I, I, if it, it, it was not the apex, but it was just one year shy. I think 1980 was the peak, but um, yeah, it was certainly uh, on an upswing. Um, as uh, I think most of your listeners know, the league basically started in 60, in 1968 after the merger of two competing leagues the season before. It uh, almost immediately collapsed. It survived in the 1969 with uh, five teams uh, and then slowly built its way back up uh, in, into, until we get to 1978, when after a very successful 1977 season, uh, highlighted mostly by Pele's swan song and a Cosmos championship and crowds of 77,000 uh, uh, piling into the uh, giant stadium, you were probably there for that. The league expanded by six teams to an all time high of 24. And in 1979, uh, the league accomplished something that it had not uh, accomplished in any prior year. Uh, All of the teams returned, all of the 24 teams returned for the 1979 season with only one relocation. Uh, Colorado moved to Atlanta. Uh, Otherwise, all the other teams stayed the same. So, yeah, it was riding at a peak. It was on a peak. Uh, That was the first year of a much ballyhooed. Uh, national TV contract with ABC, so um, yeah, everyone was uh, looking at uh, Happy Days ahead.
0: Yeah, I you know, '78 uh, was the uh, second sort of consecutive championship of uh, of the New York Cosmos. You can make the argument that '78 was probably the perfect season for the Cosmos on on on, on many different levels. And going into '79, Phil Woosnam was riding high for sure. Not only with the fact that you had uh, 24 teams and and you know, had come from so far down, uh, just not even 10 years prior, with a uh, a brand new spanking uh, network, broadcast television network contract in hand. Uh, and it could not have seemed to be anything more than happier days ahead uh, as this league was continuing, at least on its surface, uh, to grow and to, uh, to, you know, get to that next level of sort of national sports consciousness. But Maybe you could help sort of give us a little bit of a background or understanding of what, at least on the labor relations side, the players and owners relationship uh, was sort of, uh, you know, brewing around that time, even before we get to the actual uh, strike action itself. There was this and there are various players involved here, people involved. Right. So maybe a little bit of uh, also understanding that uh, this wasn't the only sort of sport in the U.S. that was going through a series of sort of labor disputes and consternation.
1: Yeah, by, by the 1970s, uh, players had realized the value of unionization. It was a concept that uh, even though in the United States, it, it was basically accepted and, uh, and essentially made lawful in 1935, uh, in that prior to that, if you were in a union, employers would challenge you as an antitrust cartel Um, subject to the Sherman Act. In 1935, the uh, U.S. Congress uh, finally resolved that in favor of unions and uh, labor organizations, uh, employees could bargain for their mutual aid and protection. But in sports, um, players were rather slow to embrace the concept and it's understandable. I mean, you're signing individual contracts, um, culturally, it, it, it tended to be kind of an every-man-for-his-self his type of situation. I'm as good. If I'm good, the owner will pay me. If I'm not good, I get cut. Why do I need a union? But by the 1970s, um, between issues with uh, free agency, not free agency, the reserve clause, players were really beginning to chafe against the reserve clause. But uh, more importantly, uh, something as simple as a pension. Players had finally come to realize, you know, I don't play forever. These owners make a lot of money on, uh, on, on my, uh, on my efforts and my skill and ability. Uh, and yet when I retire, I have nothing. So initially a lot of the, a lot of these unions were formed simply to try to get, uh, the, the employers to sit at the table and bargain a pension. And, uh, and, and there was some success there uh, in the, in the NHL, NFL, uh, major league baseball, you know, the owners could see the value of the pension it didn't really cost all that much, but then players were starting to take the next step, challenging the reserve clause, Trying to get certain uh, certain other benefits, you know, medical coverage, guaranteed contracts, things like that, and and the owners really chafed uh, and, and against that sort of unionization. So you saw, you know, the strikes in baseball. Um, I think '72 was the first strike. There may have been another one after that. There was a strike in the NFL um, in '75, uh, I believe. '75, 70, actually '74, because it helped the WFL get started um uh, the world football league and and and, and you know, the the uh, the, uh, the players union in the nba was holding up the merger between the nba and the aba because of antitrust issues unions were just getting more involved in the world of professional sports and you know we were talking about the growth of the north american soccer league uh owners certainly saw uh, potential owners certainly saw the 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 um Uh, the upswing of the sport in 1977, and they weren't alone. I mean, that's in the summer of 1977 was when the players, particularly an individual, an ex-player named John Kerr, uh, who was a a Scottish-born Canadian international who starred with the early pre-Pele Cosmos, was uh, retired by then. Uh, But uh, he and I guess some other players realized, you know, Uh, we're, we're, we're at the ground floor of something big. It would be a good idea to get together and unionize now, unionize now. So we have a seat at the table as this sport grows, as opposed to what happened in all the other sports, you know, basically all the money goes out the door. We don't see much of it. And then uh, by the time when we get involved, it's too late. So it was in the summer of 1977 that the, uh, what became the North American Soccer League Players Association formed?
0: So yeah, it was that's a, a good point in time. I'm just curious as to was that sort of the first '77, the first sort of real formal uh, approach uh, to creating a players association, or or had some of the players kind of uh, thought about or or, or at least uh, explored that idea previously, or or was this sort yeah, of chilling sure. because of, of the Pele era and all that stuff? Yeah, I was
1: doing some checking. I thought in in some of my prior research that I uh, caught references to a planned union in 1968, uh, which, of course, it was moot when there was the collapse of, you know, about 17 franchises. Um, But as far as I could tell, no, I mean, the league was such a year-to-year proposition that there uh, there was no real – you didn't see a whole lot of talk or interest in unionization uh, I'm sure the first seeds probably started. I mean, probably when Pele arrived was when people would first start thinking about it. But as near as I can tell, uh, the the first concrete steps to actually uh, form an organization and get it done uh, took place uh, during the 1977 season.
0: Well, in some respects, um, you, in some respects, you could also, you know, make the argument that uh, this is sort of. Uh, the ultimate invalidation, I guess, of the North American Soccer League, right? And that if, if you've got a a player's union at least uh, being uh, seriously talked about, uh, let alone uh, beginning to be formed, right? That that, you know, arguably is in some backhanded way a piece of evidence that, you know, the sport of soccer on the professional level had finally, quote unquote, you know, made it. But uh, I, I guess what I would I be really curious to sort of understand is what what were some of the. What were the key sort of issues, I guess, that the players kind of felt that uh, they needed to unionize around? I, from From what I can tell, and you're clearly the expert in, in this discussion, that it wasn't necessarily just about money, although money certainly has a role to play in a lot of these things but but that, that almost didn't seem to be almost like the the primary issue that, that sort of unionized or brought them together to discuss uh, unionization.
1: No, you're right. It, it wasn't just money, although clearly bumping up to minimum salaries and, and things like that are always on the table. Uh, no, it was things like in in the North American Soccer League, it appears one of the big issues that players really chafed over was the rather um, uh, rather random nature in which players would be placed on waivers um, or, or traded. Just, uh, you know, the trade, although trades are nothing new in sports. Um, for some reason in soccer uh, and and perhaps it was the presence of foreign players who were used to having a lot more say in where they were transferred and and getting a piece of the pie uh, when they were transferred to coming to America where really you were a piece of property, which is the way it had always been with athletes in in all the sports. They had a contract. You were a piece of property that could be moved at the whim of the employer. It it was things like that they were really looking to – to uh, to address guaranteed contracts, uh, that, you know they, they wanted to. Uh, if I sign the contract, I want to be able to budget my life and understand that I'm going to receive a full year's pay and not simply be cut on a whim. And now I'm unemployed with nothing. Um, I suppose long term, like anything else, it would be pension uh, pension concerns. Although that doesn't seem to be uh, it didn't seem to be on the front burner uh, by the time the parties finally got to the table. Uh, you know, basically three and a half years after the whole thing started, um, which is the real story we're going to be talking about, what a mess that was. But no, no it really was it, it, what it was, I guess you could call quality of life. A lot of it was simply, a lot of it was more quality of life issues than than trying to soak the owners for every cent they could get.
0: Was some of this, and we'll get to sort of the formation and the mechanics in a, in a minute, but was some of this uh, born from, for lack of a better description, maybe sort of a two- a perceived two class system, right? You had all these foreign imports, many of whom uh, were simply being loaned uh, to play in the United States in the North American Soccer League. It almost feels to me, with gigantic salaries, i.e., named players, Pele being sort of prime among them, versus say the let's call them rank and file of the North American player, right? Which you know have been protected by the rules to at least have some uh, a guarantee of how many players on the field, but but arguably was not even close to some of the astronomical uh, salaries that uh, some of these foreign players were making for just showing up frankly
1: yeah i i think you're absolutely right in fact um that was a real sticking point uh, i recall uh and i even though i haven't read the book in probably about 40 years i, I did read uh shet messing's memoir a couple times uh, when i was a kid and i remember even there, one of the one of the big takeaways he was talking about and this is in the pre layer, era about how he and Len Ranieri and you know, Stan Starzl would be practicing in the day and then have to go work as, you know, you know I think Shep was working at a catering hall. You know, they'd they, they, they work all night long. Uh, and then they, they went and visited some third division loan players from England, and they see they're hanging by the pool, suntan lotion, beers in hand, just enjoying life. And they realize, you know, what, what's wrong with this picture, you know? Um, I think Bobby Smith alluded to a little bit of it uh, in his interview with you about, you know, he's working on construction sites going today, practicing soccer at night. And then, uh, you know, and then some other players are coming over, the foreign players are coming over and they're getting full salaries and they don't have to do that. And, and, and yeah, there were two classes. And so as a result, uh, certainly it was the permanent players, obviously the ones who are here, here full time, American naturalized, uh, foreign residents, uh, the international residents who had stayed who found themselves on the receiving end of that as opposed to the loan players who came over here it was a paid vacation and went home, and yeah, and those two worlds were starting to collide. And I think the uh, the the the, uh, the more permanent players, who really made the made up the backbone of this league, felt it was time to try to address those issues.
0: All right, so how does the concept of unionizing go from idea and chatter into reality? Because it seems to me like uh, that this uh, this character Ed Garvey comes into play, and having had some. Uh, success uh, in other sports was looked upon perhaps as sort of the the guy who could make this happen in the NASL as well.
1: Yes, yeah, I mean under the law, any any group of employees, two or more people, could can decide they want to band together for the, the legal phrases for their mutual aid and protection, and form a lab, labor organization. That's the legal term. Uh, it doesn't have to be an already existing union. It doesn't have to be one of the brands like Teamsters, you know, you know, you you can form your own union, give it your own name, and and there's a process. And and the first step in the process is um, getting a showing of interest from the employees, basically getting cards signed from the employees saying that, hey, I wanna authorize this organization, whatever you call it, to be my exclusive bargaining agent for the purpose of, of uh, wages, uh, negotiating wages, hours, and working conditions. In 76, 1977, John Kerr, whose last team was the Washington Diplomats and was in the Washington area, um, I guess had this idea and at some point had come across Ed Garvey, who was serving as the executive director for the uh, National Football League Players Association. Uh, The NFLPA authorized Mr. Garvey to assist Kerr and soccer players Informing their own union and uh, assist not only with Mr. Garvey's expertise but also with money uh, that would be repaid when the NASLPA, the North American Soccer League Players Association, which is the name they ultimately chose for themselves, would start getting dues and licensing revenues and stuff that could pay the NFLPA back. Um, and, and they got they started working on getting cards signed. And by July of 1977. Um about uh approximately three hundred players have signed authorization cards. And when you hit that stage you can do two things. You can go to the employer directly and say, Hey, uh employer, I'm the union, I had cards signed by a majority of the employees. It doesn't have to be everybody, it just has to be a majority authorizing me to be their representative. Will you recognize me? And the employer can either say yes and then you're off to the races in bargaining, or the employer can say no, and then then there's another step. Alternatively, you can skip seeking recognition and just go right to that other step, which is what the NASLPA did here. They filed a petition with the National Labor Relations Board, uh, the federal agency that's charged with monitoring and enforcing uh, our nation's labor laws, August 16, 1977, seeking certification and even at that stage and i I used to handle these petitions when i worked at the board uh, when the petitions filed um, the employer is still free to voluntarily recognize most don't because they say look let's have an election but typically the process is pretty smooth everyone understands okay like in your average factory setting all right i'm looking to represent the truck drivers everyone agrees okay there's only one set of truck drivers in this facility and they clearly share what's called a community of interests. You know, their their interests and concerns are alike enough that they belong together as opposed to wedging in secretaries or or, or another group that has a totally different set of interests. And everyone agrees, okay, yeah, it's an appropriate unit. The union's okay. It's a, it's a legitimate labor organization. Let's have the election. The North American Soccer League chose not to do that, and that's what resulted in, in what wound up being – a three almost three and a half year fight that uh, that that in the end helped neither side uh, and uh, and uh, along the way uh, led to uh, a strike in nineteen seventy
0: nine So uh, my understanding is that uh, the concept of, of forming the union what so this was a couple about a year plus it was it august of seventy seven or so maybe it was sort of one of the first sort of uh, concept about voting to to unionize kind of came into play. So, so why that approach then of the, of the two that you just outlined, why, why that, uh, versus, uh, the other path, right? Was it, was it determined that, was that more of a strategic bet that it would force the owner's hand or the issue, uh, more forcefully or more, uh, to their liking, uh, was it a calculated bet? Was it just a, on a whim to go in this direction? Uh, give, give us no, it, give the layman a little bit of a sense of why this was the path.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, have, again, having uh, representing clients now that continue to organize, uh, uh, basically, no one, no one voluntarily recognizes anyone anymore. It's a of step. So I think it was simply, uh, look, we're, we're going to have to go to the board one way or the other. Why waste time? Let's do it. Also, the the, the concept of um, uh, uh, of involuntarily organizing, um, uh, we're getting recognized in sports was still relatively new uh you know the the nflpa had been certified by the norb a few years earlier uh the other unions were all voluntarily recognized simply because when they started out they were innocuous enough that the uh the owners said yeah we have nothing to lose why not uh, by by 1977 the owners leagues had started to realize hey unions can be a threat so no i think it was simply look let's let's get to it i mean there's uh the, the, we're, we're going to be fought here there are going to be issues that probably need to be litigated, so rather than going through the publicity exercise of uh, requesting voluntary recognition, let's just file with the NRB and get the process started so we can get to the, end, to the to the finish line, which is being certified as the bargaining representative as quickly as possible.
0: So Ed Garvey was the also the executive director of the NFL's Player Association, right? So I guess there had to be some thinking that he was the guy with the juice, so to speak, to to kind of make the NASL's case uh, forcefully. I mean, I, was there any discussion or, or why, why Garvey? Was it, was it because of that? Or, or you could also make the argument that some of the owners of the NASL also were NFL owners. Uh, I guess the thought was that, you know, uh, what better way to get people's attention to how serious we are than by having the guy who basically has been kicking the butt of the NFL over the last number of years.
1: Yeah, I think it was all of the above. I mean, first uh, yeah, Garvey did have experience, um, so uh, and uh, which counts for some, for a lot. And yes, as you pointed out, uh, of um, the NASL, there was a fair amount of cross pollinization with the NFL among the owners, uh, particularly the one Titan uh, the, 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 in the NASL, Lamar Hunt, owner of the Dallas Tornado. He also owned the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, the Robbie family, who owned the Miami Dolphins, were owners of the Fort Lauderdale Strikers. And so uh, I'm sure there was some feeling that, hey, Garvey deals with these people. Uh, so, you know, why why try to start over by by bringing in, say, you know, someone like me. Oh, he's a labor attorney, but he doesn't know uh, any of the owners. Why, why start from scratch? Let's bring in Garvey. Part of it might have been, you know, Garvey himself saying, hey, I'm the man for the job and sort of convincing uh these players uh the the unfortunate whether intended or otherwise one of the unfortunate unfortunate consequences is that garvey's presence and and the uh the looming presence of the nflpa in the background uh i mean in the was a problem Uh, it was it was it, it, it was perhaps needlessly antagonistic towards the owners uh who probably were nervous that the NASL PA offices were in the NFL PA's offices and they were sharing the same staff. And indeed, when Garvey uh, did send a demand for recognition over on August 29th, which was of 1977, which was after the petition had been filed, he sent it over on NFL PA letterhead. So if there were, if there were owners in the NASL who were worried about uh, continuing NFL influence, uh, Garvey's presence couldn't have helped. Because remember, in what would be a later lawsuit involving the owners, the NFL at this time is trying to pass rules prohibiting its owners from owning any other teams in what was seen as a clear attack at the North American Soccer League. The NFL didn't necessarily like the, the NASL and, and the owners. I think there's some a fair amount of concern on the owners' part that while, yeah, even though this is a union – this is the NFL's union. This is really, it's, it's, it's going to be a mole. It's just going to be another weapon used to put our league out of business. Uh, and so um, yeah, Garvey's presence did not make the process any smoother or any easier. And along the way, I, you know, it could be fairly said, Garvey kind of in, inserted himself too much into the process. He didn't, he didn't help. You know, it's not like John Kerr, the ex-player, was doing most of the talking. Uh, it was Garvey going to the media. It was Garvey... At the NRB hearings, and uh, and if there, you know, if there was any thought that hey, maybe we should put the owners' minds at ease, this is a soccer union. We're here for the good of the game. We're here to be a partner. Um, that was never conveyed with with Car- with Garvey looming large and waving the NFLPA flag at numerous opportunities.
0: So it seems like 1978 this, uh, was was kind of a, a, a full of uh, of sort of uh, subterfuge and, and and intrigue behind the scenes. I and mean, I think the average American soccer fan, an ASL follower, uh, was kind of unaware of most of this stuff. But uh, what of 78? I mean, this was basically when, you know, the the Players Association had finally organized and 78 was really when the National Labor Relations Board uh, certified it. From your research, were you able to sort of glean maybe what was going on uh, now that those two things had been done with respect to the owners and or... Uh, Phil Woosnam uh, uh, as commissioner, uh, were there formal meetings to basically say, hey, please recognize us? And they were rebuffed or any sort of anecdotes or sort of uh, uh, stories maybe about like how this uh, uh, attempt to get uh, recognized uh, went about in 78? Because clearly it didn't yield any fruit.
1: Well, in 77 and 78, basically, during this period, the process is working. The labor board's doing its job. I mean, the the NASLPA did all it could do at that point. It claimed it had a majority, uh, and it filed its petition for representation. Now, because of some unique issues that, in fairness to the NASL, probably needed to be raised, the matter of whether the union was an appropriate union and whether the bargaining unit was an appropriate bargaining unit had to be litigated. So in, in September, uh, early September of 1977, the parties uh, had a hearing uh, before hearing officer Richard Ross in New York to put the, to put the evidence on the table. And basically, you know, the, the, the NASL is raising three issues, essentially. Um, let me take a step back. In order to have an election, the labor board needs to check off certain boxes. One, the employer has to be engaged in interstate commerce. Well, the NASL clearly applies there. Two, the labor organization must be a legitimate labor organization. That is, uh, th- that it's there for the purpose of r- representing employees. That box needs to be checked. And the bar, and the third, uh, the third box. Well, the, the, th- the third box is that there is a sufficient showing of interest. That there's a, a sufficient number of uh, uh, people authorizing the union to be its representative to warrant having the process of an election. And you only need 30% for that, as it is, again, the NASL went in with the majority. Uh, and the fourth box is whether the bargaining unit is appropriate. You know, the law, again, There's this concept of community of interest, you're not going to wedge janitors and doctors together in a bargaining unit because what one group cares about when it comes to wages and working conditions is much different than what another group uh, cares about. And uh, so the, the board has to look at that. At the hearing, the, NA, the NASL clearly admitted that it was engaged in commerce and couldn't really challenge the uh, the showing of interest. So they raised uh, the two big issues. One, they they were asserting that the NASLPA wasn't a real labor organization for two reasons: one, because of its affiliation with the NFLPA, and two, because at that point it had already started hosting soccer camps and things like that, uh, and sponsoring some indoor tournaments. So the, the, the NASL is trying to say, well, it's actually a competitor. It's a competitor employer. Now it's not a union, so it can't be a labor organization, but most of the argument centered on the bargaining unit, the union petitioned for a league wide unit, you know, all the, all the teams, uh, you know, in the league, the league said, no, that's inappropriate it should be individual teams. Basically, the union should have the bargain with each team, the players on each individual team should be able to have a say whether they want to be union or not. And as a result, instead of one unit, there should be uh, this, this. Well, this is in 77, so I think it was uh, 18 teams, I guess. Um, there should be 18 separate elections, 18 separate units, and ultimately 18 separate contracts. Not a ridiculous concept. Because, you know, again, in the real world with factories and things like that, there's, there are certain presumptions. The board tends to look at single location units as being presumptively appropriate. Of course, the board also looks at the petition, what the petitioner wants, what the union wants, as far as being the unit being presumptively appropriate. And with any presumption, it can be rebutted. So that's what the board had to make a record to determine, you know, get the evidence and determine how are we gonna, how are we going to determine this? Um and that that hearing was done September eighth and 9th of seventy seven because of the importance of the case, typically the region. It was done in Manhattan, in region two of the board in Manhattan. Typically the region issues a decision and it can be appealed. This case was so important it was immediately transferred to the full board in September of nineteen seventy seven. And and at that point the parties are waiting on a decision. So that being the case there's not a whole lot of fire and brimstone going on. The players aren't demanding bargaining because there's been no election yet. They haven't had an election. They can't prove that a majority representative at the same time, the owners, um, uh, their hands are a little bit tied more than most because there's, uh, since there's an allegation that there's a union in in the way they have to try to maintain the status quo as much as possible. They can't go and start raising uh, the uh, minimum salary or changing roster sizes they can't change terms and conditions of employment because they have to make, they have to keep the status quo as much as possible but for the most part everyone's laying low and the board for its part was wrestling with the issues here because the, the issues were legitimate it wasn't the nasl necessarily being argumentative simply for the sake of being argumentative and it wasn't until june 30th, of 1978 that the board finally issues a decision and determines that a league-wide unit is appropriate, that uh, the the players' union is appropriate, notwithstanding its connections to the NFLPA. Uh, But it does interestingly say, but we can't include the Canadian teams because uh, as a U.S. agency, we really don't have any jurisdiction over the Canadian teams, which at that point was Toronto, um, Vancouver. It might have just been Toronto and Vancouver at that point. Calgary wasn't there yet. Montreal wasn't there yet. So yeah, it was the two teams, but they, they couldn't exercise jurisdiction over that. So, uh, but the key was, you know, the the NASLPA won. There was an election held finally, August of 1978. Um, The union wins 271 to 94. And the um, regional director for region two issues a certification of representative September 1st, 1978. At that point, the union is the certified collective bargaining representative. In normal circumstances, September 1, 1978 is the point where, okay, we won, you have to bargain with us now. And that's what you would typically see in the real world. And indeed, uh, on September 12th, I think, the NASLPA sends over its letter formally requesting bargaining and also sends a letter requesting certain information about um, the the, uh, the salaries paid in the bargaining unit, uh, waiver uh, history, you know, typical stuff that, again, any new union would ask for in anticipation of negotiations. The problem is there's a legal quirk. It's an administrative law quirk. The NASL wants to appeal the determination that the bargaining unit's appropriate, but it's not allowed to appeal the, the actual, the board's decision on the petition. It can't do that. The only way it can get the matter into the courts is by a procedure. That's called test of cert cert being certification. And that's where you deliberately say, I'm not bargaining with you. I'm deliberately going to violate the law. So there will be a board decision saying I'm violating the law, but then I can get that decision into the circuit courts, into the federal courts, out of the administrative uh, process, the board, which is administrative law, and into the courts for full judicial review. It's, it's it's, 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 It's the only way you can do that. And that's what the NASL determined to do. So from the very start the NASL deliberately not so much out of malice but out of the sense of uh, trying to exhaust its 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 remedies as far as getting a, a, a judicial review of the, the of the underlying decision concerning the bargaining unit told the NASLPA we're not bargaining with you and so on october 30th 78 the NASLPA files unfair labor practice charges with the NORB alleging refusal to bargain and the refusal to provide information And at this point, the process moves fairly quickly. November 24th of 78, the NORB issues a complaint. January 23rd of 79, the board issues an amended complaint because in order for the test of cert process to work, you need to have uncontested facts. And since with the information request, there's always different factual issues. Basically the the players union agreed to drop those charges and just go on the refusal to meet and bargain charges. uh, So uh, on January 23rd of 79, an amended complaint saying just that is issued February 2nd, 1979, a motion for summary judgments filed. And that's what's pending. So it's now early 1979. The test of cert is well along. It's now sitting before the NORB in the first instance about whether the, the league is breaking the law, uh, but the matter is sitting. And it's by now February 79, that i guess the players have decided you know we we're, we're, it's been 18 months and we're still at this stage we won an election we still can't get anyone to bargain with us the legal process can be a long drawn out thing the players start thinking okay maybe we should rattle our sabers a little bit and start seeing if we can incentivize the owners to get to the table and that's when you start hearing at the beginning of the 1979 season talk of the strike
0: All right, we're going to take a quick, brief pause, and uh, we want to remind you that our friends at Audible uh, are offering to you, our listeners, an opportunity to get a free audiobook download uh, from their amazing array of over 190,000 titles to choose from. Uh, when you go to audibletrialcom good seats, and that's the place to go to get your free audiobook download, courtesy of us and audible. Uh, And uh, it's something you can cancel at any time and you can uh, keep the book for as long as your device uh, exists. And like I said before, there's just a ton of choices uh, available to you to burn up that free credit, uh, including a bunch in the realm of our forgotten sports little genre here, uh, including uh, in the realm of basketball. If you fancy yourself a fan of the old ABA, for example, uh, two great books on the great Julius Irving that might be uh, worth uh, uh, using your credit for. One, of course, is The uh, uh, the Rise and Rise of Julius Irving. It's called Doc, and it's written by Vincent Malazzi and uh, narrated by David Cremette. You could use your credit for that book, uh, and it's a great sort of uh, interview uh, style uh, uh, background on the uh, uh, life and times of Dr. J uh, from, uh, from all sides. Uh, but if that's not good enough for you, why not try the autobiography? It's called Dr. J, The Autobiography, of course. Written by Dr. J in in concert with uh, Carl Greenfeld, and it's narrated by Dr. J himself, Julius Irving. Uh, and uh, you could use your credit for that book as well as, like I said, thousands and thousands of other books, not just only in basketball and basketball history, but in a whole host of genres and topics. By all means, give them a try. Why don't you? It's risk-free for God's sakes. Audibletrial.com/slash/goodseats. Yes, Audibletrial.com/slash/goodseats. That's the link. Uh, and that's where you're going to get your free audiobook download. Again, you can cancel at any time. And once you do download that book for free, and uh, after you cancel it, if you if you choose to do that, it's yours to keep. So you can enjoy uh, in perpetuity for as long as your device lives. Uh, they download a book free and gratis, courtesy of uh, yours truly here at Good Seat Still Available and our friends at Audible. Thank you, Audible. We appreciate it. And uh, we appreciate you uh, joining our conversation once again. What sort of turns the tide towards the idea of actually taking uh, a strike action versus uh, letting the the, the the further legal process play out? Was it was it Garvey that kind of sort of said, "Let's get moving on this"? Or, you know, did somebody was there an event or some other thing looming out there that kind of hastened uh, maybe a more dramatic action by the players? I think it was an event in
1: early '79. It started to to get the players nervous and Garvey as well that the owners were not simply sitting by and letting the process play itself out, but rather were trying to be a little more aggressive and weaken the union. And that was in 1979. In January of 79, the U.S. Department of Labor received a, a request from the North American Soccer League for 246 working visas, which was one more than what had been requested in 1978. But what the players were concerned about was not only were they seeking an extra visa, but the year before in in 1978, um, a a grand total of 476 players had used those available 245 visas because they could be shared. And the players and Garvey saw this—the request for the extra for for the one uh, additional—but the in, in, in the in the players' eyes, nevertheless, excessive amount of visas as an attempt to basically flood the league with these transient foreigners who would never have any vested interest in the union and as a result would help, would, would keep player salaries down and weaken the union's uh, bargaining strengths when they finally did get to the table. The, uh, the players' union fought back against that, filed challenges with the Department of Labor, pointing out things that, look, you know, you're not supposed to issue these, these working visas if U.S. workers can be hurt. Uh, it, it, it's funny, parenthetically, an issue that helped kill the very first pro soccer league in this country in 1894 when the Baltimore team brought over a bunch of foreigners to play, to represent the uh, Baltimore Orioles in that league, and you can't do that. When there's, Ameri- when there's people here, Americans or resident aliens who are available to do the work, you can't bring in contract players. And that's what the NASLPA had told the Department of Labor. It's like, look, you've got to cut back on these visas. We have people here who can play. And they won. They won in the sense that um, the the Department of Labor agreed to to cut the number of available uh, visas down to 220, but more important, say that a visa could not be reused unless the first player using it was either injured or quit the club voluntarily and left the country as opposed to being cut. So the players' union not only head off at the pass, what they perceived to be a, a uh, challenge by the owners to weaken their status, uh, they, they, they were, but they were successful. And I think that success emboldened them to say, hey, look, if we can do this, maybe it's time to – let's see if we can cut the legal process short and force the owners to come to the table. Interestingly, by the way, as a result of those actions, two players – uh, Kevin Keelan, the goalkeeper for the New England team, end, sure, the and David Robb, and the Cat, who one of my favorite players, and David Robb, who would wind up uh, a month or so later joining the Philadelphia Furies and becoming one of my favorite players, um, filed charges against the union with the NORB uh, because, among the other things, uh, unions can't discriminate against its members either. Uh, so they filed charges with the NRB, complaining about this tactic. And uh, those charges were ultimately dismissed. And what was a footnote? But, I mean, you can see, you know, suddenly, you know, more litigation. But so it's January 79. The players were successful in beating back uh, what they saw uh, as visa flooding. And I think they were not only getting impatient, not only kind of bothered that the owners were trying the stunt in the first place, but having been successful, they figured, you know, hey, we flexed our muscles. We got somewhere. Maybe we should flex our muscles again. Let's start saying yes word. Let's strike.
0: Naive question: uh, Were or could foreign players be part of the players' association uh, if they were using visas to play? Uh, could they or could they not be part of a collective bargaining entity? They could
1: be part of the collective bargaining entity uh, in uh, because they're permanent. They're not casual. the the The, the, the concept of appropriate bargaining unit, and presumptively it's full time and regular part time and and basically it's a pretty low bar. I mean, if you're there for any kind of set period with any kind of expected regularity, you're going to be included in the bargaining unit. That includes seasonal workers, you know, and like if you're at a, if you're working in a candy factory and every Easter and every Valentine's Day, uh, I, I wind up doubling my payroll to meet demands and those same people keep coming back, even though that's the only two times of year uh, the only two times a year they they might be working um, uh, they are nevertheless uh, allowed to participate in the bargaining. And so, yeah, foreigners who are playing in the league would be covered by the collective bargaining uh, agreement and could be represented where the the foreign status becomes an issue, uh, and it was one of the the major issues and what kept the strike from being successful. Is uh, while you could be a part of the unit, there's some question as to whether you can actually participate in any kind of a job action. And that, but that was a, that was an issue that wouldn't reiterate until a couple of months later.
0: Yeah, that, that's what that's what I was basically trying to tease out. Sort of is is sort of the yeah yeah I, I'm, I'm trying to get a sense of of the true stake that some of these foreign players, uh, basically being loaned, uh, using obviously a, a work visa to play during the course of the summer before they went back to their other leagues in in Europe or, or South America. Um, it almost feels to me like that sort of group of player, uh, nominally has an interest in seeing sort of the players generally, uh, succeed and, 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 you know, the, this, the health of the league obviously is part of their, uh, ostensible livelihoods, but it's also, I could see them being removed from really care from this because it's, you know, they, they've, they're not really as affected as sort of the rank and file, shall we say, underrepresented, uh, American or North American player, uh, who's uh, seems to be not as uh, comparable, I guess, at least in terms of pay, and, uh, and and hence maybe the the idea of unionization in the first place. No, you're absolutely
1: right, and that's sort of the the, the conundrum that the NASLPA found itself in then, and to a point, the uh, MLSTU is finding itself in now as its uh, as its contract expires at the end of this year, and they may have to confront similar issues. Um, While an argument can be made that, you know, these foreign loan players don't share a community of interest with the rest of the bargain unit, and they should be excluded, you can make that argument, and as a result, uh, leave yourself with a union that's fairly solid. There's a danger there. There's a danger in that you're excluding a big group of players who make up your league, and indeed, and the NASL was was a backbone, Um, although the loan system had really kind of dried up. Uh, with the exception of some really big-ticket players. Um, nevertheless, uh, th- that type of player remained the, the backbone of your league that you would kind of leave yourself with a minority union. I mean, you'd never get anywhere because you, you're bargaining on behalf of, you know, one-third of the, of the actual players in the league, and everyone else is foreign, not part of your union, not covered by the contract, and, and not someone you can turn to when it is time to strike, uh, you know, you're left with a situation where you know only one third of the people aren't showing up, and even though the names changed, it was still tough. There was some degree of regularity. I mean, for instance, you know, Trevor Francis did come over two years in a row. Uh, Alan Ball came over two years in a row with the same teams. Um, so that's in in that scenario, the NORB would probably say that those players belong. Uh, they share a community of interest. I mean, they here. They're here regularly in the summertime playing in your league. Uh, they have an interest in pension. They have an issue, interest in minimum salaries, health care, things like that. You can't exclude them because the board does not want proliferation of units. You can't have a foreign player union and a domestic player union. I mean, so but so you're kind of stuck with them. Uh, you, can't, you can't exclude them from the unit, but then you run into the real logistical problems that, indeed, the NASLPA – uh, had to confront in '79, and uh, I suspect the MLS union will have to confront if they do, if they ever decide the time is right to take a job action next year.
0: Yeah, and that's that's especially interesting because this, I guess, is is uh, I guess to sort of the more classic American sports fan, right, is kind of lost on them in that, uh, that perhaps maybe with the exception of the NHL, right, but uh, arguably, you know, soccer, right, is much more of a um, a world sport in terms of uh, talent uh, from from many. Parts of of the globe, right? Where you know, whereas you know, things like in baseball or in American football, right? You've got, you know, these players are really much more commonly aligned uh, in terms of skill set, in terms of player pool and talent, and uh, and those kinds of issues. So, uh, interestingly, it's it's certainly not uh, a parallel, let's say, to what maybe Garvey was able to do in the NFL.
1: Right. I mean, e- even using your your NHL example, and I think today we can even include the NBA. Even though those two sports are much more international now, uh, they they still in this country the N, the NHL and the NBA still uh, have the advantage of being the premier league in the world. So, even though it's a world uh, it's a world those are worldwide games, the best players in the world want to come here and want to stay here. Uh, soccer, the NASL in the '70s and MLS today does not share that distinction. Um, the, you know, the, the a lot of players will be more than happy and get paid just as much uh, somewhere else. So uh, that lack of permanency makes it tough to get foreign players to keep their eyes on the ball uh, uh, on issues that that are of concern to the players who are more permanent here. So, right, that uh, that that's obviously not only foreign in the general work sense. You know, a, a teamster working in a production and maintenance unit at, say, Coca-Cola doesn't have to address these issues. And even an athlete, as you've already pointed out, in baseball, football, certainly in the 70s, these weren't issues that had to be confronted. They were unique to soccer, like so much of soccer. It's very unique because of its worldwide status. Uh, a lot of the, uh, the the American, I guess for want of a better way to describe it, the American templates we expect to fit uh, don't always necessarily work with soccer and that was clearly the case here in '79.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a huge distinction that that idea that the NASL is obviously not the "quote unquote" world's best uh, league uh, in the sport, right? Which is much more of a worldly uh, endeavor versus uh, the best of the world in 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 a form of like a Major League Baseball or an NFL football. So that's a a very interesting sort of twin set of issues that. Maybe it sort of gets us to our next point, which is kind of where the, uh, I guess, real action and and hijinks really come into play, right? So I, I, we're now in March, late March of 1979 when Mr. Garvey and friends basically set uh, in motion the concept, the vote of uh, a potential strike, which is, uh, just to put it all in into context, right, this is around uh, sort of the late part of the preseason and first, I think, week of the actual regular season – uh, for the NAS- NASL in 1979. What what were some of the specifics around sort of that and the next couple of weeks, is, which is when things really got ugly and then, uh, shall we say, sideways?
1: Yeah, ugly, sideways, chaotic. Initially, the players, uh, John Kerr, Garvey, they were saying, look, we're going to go on strike. We're setting a March 31st deadline. If the league is not at the table bargaining with us, by March by March 31st, we will. The players are then going to entertain a strike vote, uh, and and again, the players are saying all along, look, this isn't about money. We're not we're not we're not threatening a strike to try to get more money. This is simply we want to be. They kept saying we want to be recognized, which is again poor choice of words. They were already recognized, but they said oh, we just want to get the club owners and the league to the table so we could start bargaining. Um, the league uh, kept saying. Uh, No, we're not meeting with you. Um, And so the March 31st deadline came and went at that point. um, uh, The players at at that point, uh, there's uh, numbers are being leaked to the media that all early, early accounts of the players are leaning three to one towards striking. Again, whether that was just a, um, just a a trial balloon to see if it would get the owner's attention uh, is, is anyone's guess, but, Ultimately, the uh, the players voted um, in uh, in in, uh, early April, uh, pretty by pretty large margin, 252 to 113 to strike. Uh, The the owners continued to ignore the demands to go to go to the table. So on Friday the 13th, appropriately enough, um, the the players went on uh, said they were going on strike. Um, The problem, and whether it's again whether you're a truck driver, a carpenter or a professional soccer player, uh, there's always that long drink of water between uh, saying I'm going on strike and actually going on strike. And in the end, the NASL NASL Players Association found out, much to its chagrin, that uh, players had much more enthusiasm for talking about a strike than actually doing it. Um, That opening weekend, uh, some teams... Had had the, the, pretty much the entire roster decide to go on strike. Some teams, no one went on strike. Some teams, only one or two people went on strike, and so it, it was chaos. And uh, and along with the chaos, uh, some humor, some tragedy, uh, but it, it, it was a mess. And and and, and, you know, a lot, and again, it, it, which is typical in situations like this. Anytime you have players crossing the line, you know we're on strike. We voted for a strike. I don't care if you didn't vote for it. When the body votes for a strike, you're supposed to strike. You don't cross the line. Um, and you had many players, star players, crossing the line. Uh, it, 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 it resulted in player against player. It was a mess. Uh, but that weekend, again, some comedy, some tragedy. But uh, you, know, you had situations like Chicago. Chicago's thing voted 19-0 against the strike. And, you know, they had a normal game. They played against Vancouver, who was a Canadian team, was not part of the bargaining unit, and was prohibited by by Canadian law from striking anyway. So they they had a regular game. But then you have... And then Tampa Bay, who also voted against the strike, played against the full-strength Toronto. But then you get Philadelphia. Philadelphia Fury voted unanimously against the strike, went up against the New England team, who had 10 regulars go out on strike. So... They're playing with backups and people they can pull off the street. Um, uh, Washington had three, three people strike, so they had mostly a full lineup. Fort Lauderdale, the Fort Lauderdale strikers lived up to their name. Sixteen of them went out on strike, and they were grabbing anyone they could find. Uh, they had, they had uh, two, two brothers share goalkeeping duties, and I think they were accountants during the day. Um, I won't go line by line, but to give you another example, just tell, or game by game, but um, two more examples, I guess. Memphis only had one player show up, um, uh, and I won't mention his name, as, why would I want to honor a scab, right? But, but he, was, he was a foreign player. He was the only one that showed up. His agent played goal that night um, uh, for Memphis against the Detroit Express, who took advantage of playing against the team of replacements, an American named Bob Rohrbach. Had a four-goal game. I don't think he scored a goal after that. Um, so, it just—it it was a mess. And one of the biggest messes was with the Cosmos. The Cosmos initially voted twenty to two to strike, and that was important because you know the Cosmos were the flagship franchise in that league. And I think other players looked to see uh, the, the the other players around the league looked to see what the Cosmos were doing. And initially, the Cosmos voted twenty to two to strike. As it turned out. Uh, most of them had a change their heart and went to the game anyway. Um, uh, 14 regulars went to play Atlanta, uh, Bobby Smith, Warner Roth, Gary Gary, Etherington, and one or two others were, were among the few who didn't go, but rather infamously because it was reported in the papers at the time. I mean, Bobby Smith is screaming at the bus trying to convince his teammates. Don't go, don't go. He's in tears. According to some reports, um, But, uh, you know, but they went and indeed, you know, other, other, from what I've seen from press reports, other teams were calling and asking, is Beckenbauer playing? You know, I mean, I guess if he honored the line, some other players would have also decided not to play, but uh, he played. And, and you just saw the the strike dying on the vine. There were lots of reasons for it. But one of the big reasons was a lot of the foreign players really didn't know where they stood. Some, foreign players um didn't play because they were afraid if they if they were strike breakers they were going to get deported because you know federal law was you couldn't bring in foreign players to replace america to replace workers who were striking so they're afraid well if i play i'm going to be deported so they sat out even if they even if they even though they really didn't want to other players Played because they were afraid. Well, if I participate in the strike, I'm going to get sent home. So, you know, it was it was particularly awkward for a league that was still the, the large majority of which was foreign. That the players didn't know where they stood. You know, the, the players' union was saying what they wanted them to hear because they wanted support. The owners were telling them something else because they wanted them to play. It was a mess. So that weekend was utter chaos. Um, and and but it can be fairly said that the strike. Was a disaster. I think ultimately a grand total of 143 players, less than one third of the of the entire league, actually struck.
0: Why was it, why was the participation rate in this strike so widely varied by team? Right, because the 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 effect of of foreign players in the league was you know was widespread in the league. Right, it wasn't. It was fairly fairly quote unquote evenly distributed. You know, but but I mean, to go why unanimous against in Chicago, say versus almost universally for, albeit not fully played out, uh, say in New York. Right? It just seems like these are completely wildly different, non-uniform uh, results. I guess in terms of whether to to strike or not to strike.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And no result, again, it seems. Yeah, well, well, based based on practical experience um, that I see today, my best guess would have to be that it was it would depend on the quality of the player rep. I mean, Garvey couldn't be at twenty four places at all times. Each of these teams had a player representative, a shop steward, if you will, and I think a lot of it might come to the the personal charm and charisma of the player rep, able to persuade his teammates to follow along some of it may be cultural you know for instance the, the fort lauderdale strikers um largely english presence the concept of unionization was not a foreign one uh to english players they'd seen the value of the english players union in busting the maximum wage and things like that um there was some uh, homogeneity there i mean it was it was largely english i mean not i guess not coincidentally one of the few regulars for the strikers who busted the strike was Teofilo uh, Cubillas from Peru for whom unionization he wasn't English and unionization may have been a, a difficult concept for him to swallow as opposed to Chicago largely German at that point point. Um, and while the Germans are not anti-union as a people they have had great success with it again it just might be hey we feel loyal to Willie Roy we feel you know whatever Certain teams are treated better than us I think Lee Stern Chicago being a good example Lee Stern was good to his players you know conversely uh the robbie family who owned the strikers while they may not have been bad to the players per se i think they treated them well uh the robbies were one of the main villains the hunts and the robbies were seen as the two big villains in this piece uh who were fighting hard against unionization so maybe uh the strikers players felt uh, much more strongly about it as far as the cosmos i couldn't tell you what happened again the initial vote was 20 to 2 only two people voted against the strike the uh, infamous class act, Giorgio Canalia was one of them. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, when it was time to actually walk the line, 14 regulars changed their mind and went. Um, what was that? It was, was Bobby Smith uh, too strident? Uh, and He turned some people off. I mean, that's just a pure guess. I'm not going to say anything bad about Mr. Smith, but uh, a pure guess. I know I was reading some reports. Not, none of the Dallas players struck. But Steve Petcher, an American player, said, look, we, we got all the facts. And they really appreciated the work of their player rep, uh, a guy named George Lay, because he said he came here and he was just very factual. He didn't repeat anti-owner propaganda. Uh, he didn't badmouth the union. He just told us factually what was going on. And under those circumstances, we didn't think the time was right. And with the benefit of hindsight, I have to say, I'll put on my labor lawyer hat. I have to say that while there's a certain value to wanting to flex your muscle, um, with the benefit of hindsight, I'd have to say it's really it was it was really a dumb move, a short-sighted move, to play the strike card over something you already had. I mean, you just, you may have been impatient with the process, but the process is the process. Um, so going on strike to try to force the, the owners to give up their legal right to appeal it was it was just not the type of thing you you want to lay your cards on the table for because. What you have is what you you had here. You had a bunch of players who didn't feel that strongly about it. It's not like you were fighting for wages. It wasn't like you were fighting for a pension, something like, hey, they won't even give us a pension. That's outrageous. Um, uh, You're you're fighting over the right to be talked to. You already had that right. You were just waiting for the the board and the courts to affirm that. It it was a strange move. It was a strange move. Uh, By the way, before I forget, one other, like with Philadelphia, voting 19-0, to the situation there – it might be attributable to the fact that uh, the uh, the fury cut the uh, the player rep. Uh, he was admittedly he was a third string goalkeeper named David Bragg, but he got cut. So in a situation like that, you're like, oh, maybe the players got scared. They said, hey, our union rep got cut. The union could do nothing for him. Why are we going to go on strike? So there's lots of different things that come into play there. But I think ultimately it may have come to for a lot of these players, the issue of going on strike so we will be talked to when we already had that right. We're just waiting to enforce it. Didn't seem the type of thing worth going out over. And indeed to finish that thought, I guess the the bitter irony we'll we'll talk about how the the union tried to keep the strike going, but I'll just give you a timeline. The strike was finally called off on April 18th for reasons we'll talk about in a second, less than two weeks later. Guess what? The board finally issued its, its order finding that the uh, the unit was appropriate and the, and, the, and the NASL violated law by refusing the bargain, which took it to the next step, which you know, so, which got it in the federal court, which was going to be the final step anyway. So, uh, again, they struck. And for what, two weeks later, they got the answer they were looking for anyway.
0: That said, did the strike action hasten the board's decision or was that completely separate from... From this, I guess the point is that I mean, was there a Pyrrhic victory? Well, it was a Pyrrhic, but but the, did it nudge things along faster? This, uh, uh, albeit uh, uh, ill-fated, strike.
1: Uh, I can answer as a again as a former board employee. Uh, officially, probably not. It's not like because there was a strike, suddenly the uh, suddenly President um, uh, Carter is picking up the phone and and yelling at the board to get the decision out. Uh, however, practically speaking, um, given the, given the fact that there was a weekend with a work stoppage, it might, it it might've had the effect of prompting the board to finally get the decision out, but it's impossible to say, but it's important to remember the union was going to continue to strike. I mean, even though that first weekend was a disaster, you know, both sides were kind of pointing at the immigration and naturalization service. The the players union is saying, well, we didn't get enough support because these players are afraid they're going to get sent home um, if they if they play if they uh, if they honor the strike line. The owners are saying you're going to get sent home if you go on strike. And they were waiting for some guidance from INS. So to, to give you a timeline, April 15 was the weekend of the strike. It's a disaster. April 16, Garvey and what's probably he's scrambling now, face-saving mode makes this offer look he offers the league look i will give you a no strike clause we will not strike even if we don't reach terms on an agreement we will not strike if you agree to meet with us if you agree to start bargaining with us we'll give you a promise we won't strike over economic terms the league still said no april 17 the next day garvey kerr handful of reps from from some of the stronger teams like the strikers meet with the cosmos to try to convince the Cosmos to go out on strike because they recognize if the, what the Cosmos do, the rest of the league will follow. The Cosmos, again, demure. They're like, no, we're not going to go on strike. And then, finally, that same day, INS rules that, look, players on a current visa will not be deported if they play during the strike. Well, with that... All the leverage the, yeah, right. Garvey's non American support, non North American player support, goes out the window. Because as it turns out, I guess of the 143 players who struck, those who were foreign, they didn't strike because they wanted to. They struck because they felt they had to. And I want to make a key distinction. I'm sure that doesn't include people like Ray Hudson, who was a strong union man and, and was all in, you know. But some of these other players, they, they were probably out because they thought they had to be out and they were welcoming the opportunity to go back to work. So, right. Garvey, at that point, was looking at an Americans-only strike, and at that stage, Americans weren't getting a whole lot of minutes in that league. Yeah, you know, when, when your bench goes on strike, who's going to notice? It was pointless, so Garvey called the strike-off on the 18th of April.
0: So what sort of came out of all this? Because clearly they, they, the, the debate, the conversation, the consternation was still very, very much still wending its way through the courts, uh, and I guess it wasn't even settled until... Frankly, it was too late by 1984 in terms of all of that. But it also feels to me that you know it it kind of got forgotten, at least you know on on some levels, uh, fairly quickly because the league you know continued on its way in '79 and '80, arguably to some to some great success. I mean, was there any retribution? I mean, it's pretty clear based on our conversation with Bobby Smith, I think that he. The reason why he left the Cosmos in 79, I don't think, was of his own volition. And I think an argument could be made that because of his leadership of uh, from the union side of things of, in the Cosmos clubhouse, uh, that he was kind of, at least in management's eyes, persona non grata, as 79 wore on. But uh, that seems to be more, unless I'm missing something, more the exception rather than the rule? Or was there other, other repercussions to to players who are more vocal as well, as you could tell.
1: Well, there, there were two things. There, there were definitely player repercussions, and I'm going to mention some names that will really surprise you. Um, but I think there's, remember, there's, there's another factor. While all this is pending, as a matter of law, the NASL is supposed to maintain the status quo. Again, they can't make changes to working conditions. Um, and one one, uh, even though this, I guess, th- th- this effect was pre-strike. One thing that the, the the presence of the union had a real hand in in uh, hamstringing the the league on was plans to enter uh, plans to have an indoor league in seventy eight seventy nine to directly challenge the brand new major indoor soccer league had to be put on hold because starting an indoor league would be a unilateral change. Which would generate unfair labor practice charges, uh, and 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 it was something that the the league really didn't want. So in 78, 79, and probably they were hoping, hey, this will go away by next year, you know, they took a pass, and as a result, gave the ground floor to the MISL, and That's they had Mister Ed Pepper, you had Mister Ed Tepper on just a couple of weeks ago, sort of pointing out, yeah, we we had it all to ourselves. It was a huge advantage. Things like that. Wound up being a, a, a you know body blows to the league that that they may not have seen the bruising right away, but it became problematic. But going back to the players, going back to your main question, Bobby Smith was he absolutely was. He got traded from the Cosmos, and and I don't think there's any doubt that it was it was in retaliation for his union activities. I already mentioned Dave Bragg, who again third string goalkeeper, and nevertheless, Dave Bragg has given his walking papers even before the strike by. Um, uh, by the Philadelphia Fury, there was you know, but Bobby Smith, the Hall of Famer. There's another hall, there's two other Hall of Famers, Al Trost, who was known as Captain America at the time. He was pre-Ricky Davis. He was probably the most visible and best American-born player in the league. He starred with the St. Louis Stars. He moved out to California in '78 when that franchise became the California Surf. He was that team's union rep after the '79 season. Future Hall of Famer Outros is traded to the Seattle Sounders for the Seattle Sounders player representative, a Canadian Hall of Famer, goalkeeper Tony Chersky. Both of those players were out of the league after the 1980 season. Altros, the Hall of Famer, out of the league after that season. Chet Messing, who was one of the few players in, in Rochester who went on strike, um, finished the 79 season and never played an outdoor game again. And part of that might have been Shep's preference to play indoor. He was sort of all in with the New York arrows and helping that league start out. But you know, money's money and being active is being active. I, I find it hard to believe that a, a goalkeeper of Shep's caliber, who statistically he's, he the league's all time best. If you look at save percentage, um, couldn't find work, 80, 81, 82, 83. He's still playing indoor. Um, uh, unless you're sitting, there, unless you have to consider that there was a fair amount of blackballing going on, um, uh, and because the league was getting nasty, because after the strike, you know, the league basically stopped with its its practices. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna hold the status quo. They start making changes. They start talking about. They start making changes in early February of 1980, which is really what brought this to a head in early 1980. They start, uh, well, actually, I shouldn't say early 1980 In, in 79, after the strike is broken, uh, the league starts feeling emboldened. And that's always the problem when you take a swing and miss. As the saying goes, if you're going to shoot at the king, make sure you kill him. The player's missed. So the league starts flexing, flexing its muscles. In March of 79, they start doing things like uh, now requiring the players to get approval from the team if they want to wear a different brand of shoes than what the team's endorsing. They announced they're going to do indoor soccer in 79-80, whether the players like it or not. They, they announced a plan to increase the schedule by two games in 1980, plans to reduce roster size, again, the type of thing you're going to take jobs away, the type of thing that's going to hurt the union from 30 to 26. Uh, they, start direct, they start negotiating with players out of contract directly, which you can't do when there's a union. Um, even in the world of sports, where most of your contracts are ultimately individual, when you're talking about salaries, this this leads to a series of un- new unfair labor practice charges being filed by the union against the against the league. That this time results in the the the, the National Labor Relations Board uh, seeking injunctive relief. At this point, at this point, the board finally decides to start flexing its muscle and says, "We're going to put a stop to this." The NASL is flagrantly violating the law. Understand why this is going on. Um, you know, the, uh, March 21st of 1980, a district court denies the test of cert case. Basically, the final word is issued that the unit's appropriate. Actually, the final word issued when, on October 14th of 1980 when the U.S. Supreme Court denied review. Meanwhile, in August of 1980, the Players Union gets an injunction Uh, ordering the league to sit down and bargain, restore the status quo, overturn all those, uh, individually negotiated contracts and, and start bargaining and October 3rd, 1980, the appeal of the injunction was denied. So you're looking October 3rd, 1980, the appeal, the injunctions denied October 14, 1980, the Supreme court denies certiorari of the uh, denies review that's a legal term for review discretionary review won't review the test of cert so october 14 1980 three years and a couple months after this all started it's finally done the league has to sit and bargain with the union so but along the way again players uh, with three hall of famers who are run out of run out of the league messing should be in the hall of fame he's run out of the league um, the 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 divide between the native player and the foreign player grows. There's bad blood. It, it, it was a mess all around. And then the sad capstone to all this, I guess, is that having fought for over three years to keep the union out, when the parties finally get to the table, the league basically lies on its back and let let lets its belly get tickled. It, it gave it, it gave the shop away, which is which was a big. You know, it contributed towards the ultimate demise of the league.
0: All right. Well, so let's let's maybe sort of round the curve with that sort of thought, right? So, you know, there there are some people out there that sort of say that uh, that, that this the the strike and, and the things before, uh, during, and frankly, the pieces of 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 it afterwards uh, was a contributing factor to the league's uh, ultimate collapse. Now, I, that sounds a little facile and a little sort of naive to sort of think that that, that, that was sort of the, the uh, foundational issue. But um, it, I, I got to think that that was part of the bigger tableau of issues and, and obviously some of the others. But I, I guess I would reframe the question then is, how much do you think that this labor strife and, – and it seems to me you could make the argument that by the time the league collapsed in 84 or early 85, some of these basic issues that they have been were fighting over over these, those years – were never really fully solved. No, they weren't. And I guess, I don't think
1: the strike, the actual strike was just an itch to be scratched. I mean, that, that was no big deal. But I think where the league was hurt by the presence of the players' union was, again, in that over three-year period, starting in July, starting in August of 77, where, as a matter of law, the league is obligated to maintain the status quo they can't make changes without bargaining, that even during that growth period, I mean, they had the big growth in 78, but if they saw in 79 uh, and going into 80, tweaks that needed to be made, if they were able to see cracks in the firmament that said, you know, all right, this is spinning a bit out of control, maybe we do need to reduce roster size, maybe we do need to reduce minimum salaries, maybe we have to make some changes to to, to, um, cut some costs to remain viable, they weren't in a position to do it. If indoor soccer was a revenue stream that was uh, that was worth being exploited, they missed a prime opportunity to do it on the ground floor when they when the league felt it had to take a pass on on starting its season in seventy eight seventy nine because of the labor strike. That that you know, we won't know what the league wanted to do. We had some idea. Again, we saw. I mentioned they were trying to reduce uh roster size and things like that but you know if there were other things that could have been addressed and and the league wasn't able to st- if there was certain bleeding that the league wasn't able to staunch because of its obligation to maintain to the, stat- the status quo um the the presence of the union would have certainly hurt there ultimately the contract that was agreed to um well not excessive uh, certainly not by today's standards what we see with contracts uh, nevertheless, did include provisions that was, was too much too soon. Um, some examples, it was a 25% increase in minimum salaries, uh, in 1980. They finally got a contract. I'm sorry. Uh, the, the December 5th, 1980. Uh, after all that fighting, it basically took four all night bargaining sessions to get a contract. It included a 25% wage increase in minimum salaries. Uh, it guaranteed contracts. Um, it didn't have instant free agency, but it had built-in escalators, kind of, on, uh, kind of like a, a watered-down version of a franchise tag. Actually, not even that, because it was automatic. In uh, the, 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 the players basically agreed to a, two, a three-year reserve clause. The first year, the option year, was an automatic 10% raise. The second year was an automatic 7.5% raise. And then you were free the third year. Uh, players got a piece of, uh, of waiver money. You got a 10% relocation bonus if you were traded away at mid-season. These were costs that, in hindsight, the league was ill-prepared to handle. Um, and, and, and of course, and, and we now see, you know, it wasn't all the players' fault. We were all anyone who's who's studied the league now knows what a disaster the rapid expansion in, in 1978 was when you when you had so many weak sister franchises already around dragging the league down. Um, uh the the, the n a s l was bleeding from a lot of different places uh but the but the union kind of accelerated it, but lest we forget um there is one good thing about having a collective bargaining grant, and that is when there's a labor organization, there are certain exemptions from antitrust concepts and one thing that 's a violation of antitrust law is a salary cap because it, that it, it's it's a limit on competition, and so that 's why every time the NBA goes out of contract, the players threaten to decertify because they know if they decertify, the contract goes out the door and now the salary caps are illegal. Well, when Howard Samuels took over the league from Phil wisdom and tried to fix some of these things in 1984, he was able to institute the salary cap because of the presence of the union, because he had a collective bargaining agreement. If the union wasn't there, you couldn't do that. And the league probably would have died a year earlier. Okay. Now that's not much of a victory, but unions aren't always bad. I mean, I'm not just saying that because I'm a labor attorney unions aren't always bad. If you work with them, they can be your partners here. Everyone. I mean, probably you could say from the very formation of the union in 77 through the contract being entered into in 1980, I think both sides thought the sport was a lot healthier than it really was. And as a result, Everyone spent too much too soon. And indeed, I think you could say the same thing about the MISL, where Earl Foreman did not have a contentious relationship with the union. He wanted a union. He wanted to set some of these parameters right away. Nevertheless, both sides, uh, just, just their eyes are bigger than their stomachs. As the saying goes, they, they, both sides spent too much too soon. And yeah, ultimately, the presence of the union was, was absolutely a contributing factor to the demise of the North American Soccer League.
0: All right. Last question. How do we uh, juxtapose this with uh, what uh, is or might, again, transpire in Major League Soccer? Some differences, of course, right? Major League Soccer is still a single entity business. It is has uh, obviously gotten uh, quite big, lots of uh, interesting revenue streams and soccer-specific stadiums and, and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it seems to me that some of, uh, you know, uh, some of this, you know, everything old is new again, uh, when it comes to things like player salaries and rights to uh, to move back and forth between franchises or uh, be able to negotiate their contracts in an appropriate manner. What do you think, sort of, if you have to look at your crystal ball, anything similar or dissimilar this time around, maybe in the next year or two as MLS and their players uh, perhaps come to loggerheads again?
1: I think the big similarity is going to be that, um uh, the, the the you have a union, uh, the, the MLS union that really feels the need to flex its muscles this time. And I think there's a there was a feeling that they kind of got deep pantsed with the last contract. They settled uh, for a pretty watered down version of free agency, um, and and the league kind of rubbed it in their face when uh, halfway through the season, uh, after the contract was settled, the concept of targeted allocation money suddenly came out. I mean, the the, the owners were, were basically bragging, we had all this money set aside because we thought you were going to fight a little harder. Well, now we're going to spend it. So I think, so as in 1979, you have a players' union that feels it's got to flex its muscle. You've got a players' union to think that uh, thinks with, that, with probably, in fairness, much greater reason to than the NASL players' union did, that it this is a league that is thriving. This isn't a paper, this isn't a Ponzi scheme in the sense that, hey, 79 is good. They still have all the money from the six expansion teams. No one folded. Everything's good. MLS is in a much different territory, as you've already pointed out. I mean, it's just many more revenue streams. They own their stadiums, what have you, that that the money's there. The key lesson that the MLSPU needs to learn from the NASLPA and the strike is that, you know, not all of your members feel as strongly about, the issues as the leaders may you, I mean, you have the foreign player problem. Uh, and, and even, and now it's not so much the lone player, the, the, the transient element. Now it's, it's, it's a problem in that what's important to an American player, increasing the minimum salary and getting free agency may not be as important to the Caribbean player or African player for whom this salary is a King's ransom. You know, is much greater than anything they're going to get in at home, and they know they're not good enough good enough to play in Europe. Why, wh- how do you incentivize a player like that to walk the line and make common cause with his, his 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 American counterparts? It can be done. I mean, that's where good union leadership comes into play, where you're able to say, "Look, big picture, guys, this is going to help you." Yeah, I know this is more money than you ever see, and you think it's crazy. Why would you walk? But You'll not only get more money, but you might get a pension. You might do that. I mean, it's there's there's always salesmanship involved in any strike. I mean, not there's never 100% support for any strike in any industry. There's always a fair amount of persuasion, a fair amount of advocacy that has to be done. And I think the NLS Players Union, if it's intent on striking, if it doesn't get what it wants, and I do think this time out, that's really going to be feeling. Uh, they, they 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 need to pay close attention to the lessons that the NASLPA learned in '79 and make sure they have true support to walk out, not just people willing to raise their hands and say, "Yeah, I'll do it," uh, but that when the time comes, they are going to walk the line and not go to work. And that's that's always difficult, but um, uh, uh, I think history shows history has shown that the ML. SPU has this work cut out for it if that's the path that decides to go now.
0: I think that's especially interesting because then you're going to start to see <clears throat> some narrative shaping, right? Because MLS at once uh, likes to tout how successful it is. It's getting, you know, on the march to 28 franchises and soccer-specific stadiums and uh, and all that kind of stuff. And yet, you know, when it's convenient, you sort of hear. Uh, Commissioner Garber and others sort of talk about how they're still in investment mode and, they're not, you know, there's not a whole lot of profitability yet and, you know, all these kinds of uh, other sort of side issues and stuff. So the truth, obviously, is somewhere in between those two things. But it would seem to me, right, that given, geez, almost, you know, 25 plus years now of uh or twenty plus years of uh, or thirty years, what nineteen ninety six? So let's do the math. Uh, it, it, a lot of a lot of years, uh, Major League Soccer has spent, uh, uh, you know, building up uh, a foundation. It seems that's a lot more stable, and frankly, a, probably a bigger target that uh, any uh, players' uh, uh, union will have. A much wider array, I guess, of things to uh, to nibble at with uh, with some kind of union action. So it'll be very interesting to see sort of what transpires in the next year or two, for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, as you point out, every every league cries poor when the time comes. I mean, they, 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 because in every, in every employer does that, too. No employer says, yeah, I got lots of money. How much of it do you want? They all cry poor. Um, and, and as opposed to the 70s, I mean, the, 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 these leagues have learned how to fight back. Um, uh, you know, NFL and, and the NFL and the NBA has is, is pretty much thumped their unions the last few contract cycles. The NHL has not had as much success. Um, because the NHL Players Union is just, a, uh, they're just better suited to withstand lockouts as opposed to uh, the other two leagues where careers are shorter. I mean, I'm not going to beat up on the players. There's much different factors involved. And you know, by all counts, um, baseball is about to run into some labor strike. I mean, the players are in strife. The players are itching for a strike. So whether MLB finally wins one remains to be seen because that's a league that's always been beaten up uh, by its union. So it's, uh, yeah, it's not like it was in the seventies where everyone was so afraid of a strike that in the end, uh, the, the, the the players always came out ahead. Um, you know, owners know how to fight back. MLS has the advantage, as you pointed out, it's single entity as opposed to those other leagues. They don't have to fear the absence of a collective bargaining agreement or a decertification because they're a single entity. They've already bitten the antitrust bullet and survived. Um, so, um, And and one would hope. And again, I say this as a labor attorney. I would still think. I would still hope that the union recognizes that. Again, you're not the NFL. You're not the NBA. All those factors that came into play in '79 uh, that we discussed. It's a worldwide market. You know, players have plenty of places to play other than NLS. That uh, that by all means get what you can get. But you know, I, I really hope you don't. Uh, you know, wind up really uh, dealing a fatal blow to the league in the process. Because even with the soccer-specific stadiums and and, and everything else, you know, you you just get the feeling that uh, some of these owners would be more than happy just to close up shop and take the tax write-off if that time came. I mean, 2002 was a different era, as we know. but It was pre-Beckham and everything else. But, you know, the the bankruptcy papers were drawn up. They, They had no problems almost cashing it in. Yeah, not that long ago. Uh, I'd I'd hate to see anyone give them the opportunity to think about going down that road again.
0: Look, as a fan, I remember this strike. But I will tell you that you know we were also also in a time then in '79 where information was uh, much harder to come by, right? It wasn't like we had internet and all that kind of stuff. So it was kind of like what you could sort of divine in the agate uh, of your local newspaper. And I had the, the you know the ability to sort of be in the New York area, so we had a little bit maybe more. Than most, and then maybe Soccer America the week or two afterwards, and that was kind of it. It was wasn't a whole lot of, you know, uh, a real nuanced uh, conversation or discussion about sort of, you know, this strike thing. And, I, and maybe because, because I was a kid at the time, right? But you know, I, I think there was probably a little bit of uh, I would call it naivete. But uh, I think most most fans kind of even it didn't even register on their collective uh, brains, right? They just were still. Some were just becoming still enamored with the sport, and then obviously the, the the crowds were still growing at that point so it's, it's, it's funny, I, I was a little, still, yeah
1: i was a little it's funny I was a little different I was fourteen at the time, but i was I lived in a union household my father was a union he was, he was president of a local union and so uh, and I was a big soccer guy even then so i was I was watching it much more intently because it was just like whoa oh, strike these guys are gonna do like what my dad does i mean he only went out on strike once you know like fifteen years earlier, but I mean, this is I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to watch this and, and you're right. I mean, other than soccer America, the Philly papers didn't really talk about it much. Uh, you know, again, none of the fury struck. I do remember seeing like the, the, um, the capsule summaries and it mentioned that, you know, uh, the, this, everyone went out on this team, but no one went out on that team. I was able to see it wasn't much of a strike as opposed to what I, I remember the baseball strike and the football strike, you know, where, uh, you knew, oh, it was, it was on the news and you saw people with pickets. I mean, apparently only the California Surf—they they were the only team that actually bothered walking around with picket signs. But I was—even uh, then—I was paying attention to it because, you know, the future labor lawyer. I mean, that's, uh, i didn't want to be. I didn't think I wanted to be a lawyer at the time. I wanted to be a pro soccer player. But <laughs> you know, labor law was in my house, and, and, and even my dad, who didn't say much about soccer, was paying attention because any time workers were trying to do something, he was all in. And uh, and I remember being disappointed that the strike failed. I mean, you know, because not that I wanted to see the league fail. But even at that age, it was the, the union person in me thought, well, that's too bad. I mean, the, these players went to do something and they did a really bad job at it. And now this is what we have. So, so it, it registered with me then.
0: Yeah, be, be careful what you wish for, because it seems like uh, your uh, this uh, exercise may uh, wind up becoming um, uh, newly interesting to a bunch of people. Maybe the next year or two as MLS sort of crosses their next bridge. So um, not that we're wishing that to happen, but uh, I I don't know, you know, as the increasingly casual MLS observer, uh, which is saying something, you wonder what's next on that horizon. It seems inevitable that there will be some kind of something uh, in short order that uh, recalibrates um, that story for the next couple of years, right?
1: Yeah. And, but you know, as you saw with the World Football League, I mean, it would be interesting to see whether if there was a strike um whether someone will then decide to take that opportunity to finally jump start a genuine rival league that whether has pro rel or otherwise that that is perhaps a bit more aggressive than m l s and because there will be available of players if I want strike, then you go play for someone else I'm, Yeah, so uh, which is why hockey—it's one of the reasons why hockey always falls apart. Because a lot of those guys are more than happy to go home to York and pick up a paycheck while they're on strike. You know, will someone decide, hey, there's labor strife? Here's the opportunity again, just like the WSL. Here's the opportunity to grab some good players, and we're going to form this pro well league, and, and and we'll see if the uh, who, you know, where the American soccer public falls. So, yeah, because again, historically, we've seen the only thing that generates change for the better in sports in this country is a rival league. Whether it's the AFL, ABA, WHA, whatever. Uh, it, it's going back to 1901, the American League actually helped save baseball because it cleaned it up. At some point, you need, we need to have a rival here. Someone's got to challenge MLS supremacy. I know it's a little harder um, with, uh, with uh, the USSF and FIFA. Uh, I think the NASL had its opportunity in 15, and then they dropped the ball. Uh, and, they, and they And they brought their they, they should have gone the antitrust route then when the uh, Division one standards were suddenly going to be doubled right before they applied for it uh as opposed to waiting until they were fighting over whether they were d two or not but uh so, someone's got to 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 make that challenge i think to finally push the sport to the next level here because uh, I think it's too far gone it's never going to fall to go away again i I'm convinced of that and 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 the strike may help prompt that. Interestingly enough, I'm not necessarily rooting for strike because there's, there's always consequences. We saw it with the NASL. We saw, it, uh, you know, um, in some other leagues, um, you know, and, and even box across that, that was more a lockout. But I mean, it, it's still slowly uh, bouncing back from that. But uh, at the same time, I, I do I think MLS is getting a bit too complacent. I think we're seeing the problems. I mean, with the national team. I, I think a lot of it across the board. Um, USL seems to be lining itself up to be that competitor. It's playing like it's a, a partner, but between the championship and League One, and now putting teams at Chicago proper, you know, I could see them waking up on one day like the American League did. They were at the a Western League one day, a minor league, woke up in 1901 and announced, oh, we're major now in, in AEO. So um, I'm rambling, so I'll stop it. I, I think a strike may be a catalyst, might, might be the first domino in that effect, and it'd be curious to see how that all plays out.
0: Thanks once again to Steve Holroyd. And uh, if you remember, Steve was also a previous guest uh, when we were talking about uh, his website called retrolax.com, his other passion, of course. And if you're interested in the history of uh, box lacrosse and frankly, lacrosse in general, uh, of the professional variety in particular uh, in the United States, I cannot highly recommend uh, retrolax.com. That's retro, R-E-T-R-O-L-A-X.com enough uh, it is a true trove of uh, of wonderment uh, about uh, all the various little nooks and crannies of uh, the history of pro lacrosse in this country. Uh, but, uh, of course, uh, if you're interested more in uh, Steve's uh, soccer history uh, stuff, uh, you, of course you can check out this article uh, about the uh, NASL strike and a bunch of other things that Steve has written over the years as well at ussoccerhistory.org. That's ussoccerhistory.org. That is the uh, home site of the Society for uh, American Soccer History. Uh, and you'll find all kinds of interesting stories and, uh, and anecdotes there. But uh, again, I think it's a very, uh, uh, very interesting article and conversation, uh, especially with the uh, knowledge that uh, by the end of the 2019 season of Major League Soccer, we will yet again be looking at uh, another situation where the players and the owners. Uh, will have differing points of view as to how to relate with each other in the years ahead. Uh, and I think you'll see uh, in the, in those proceedings some real interesting statistics and data and stories, frankly, and framings of just how successful or perhaps financially not successful Major League Soccer is and perhaps how the future of the sport here in the United States on the pro level uh, will look going forward. Lots of things to celebrate over the 20-some-odd years of Major League Soccer and lots more still to come. But again, we kind of, you know, look at uh, history as a, a bit of a uh, a framing for what looks uh, to be in the future. And uh, I would argue that uh, not all that glitters is gold right now, uh, in uh, not only in professional sports, but professional soccer in particular. Anybody who's gone to an MLS game and has uh, wondered why there are so many empty seats or uh, has uh, scratched their head as to how a league that was, uh, you know, contracting maybe about 10 years ago could now support uh, upwards of 28 and then some franchises, including a whole bunch of soccer-specific stadiums. You know, it's very interesting to sort of see what the economics of that really are and uh, maybe how the, uh, the players and the owners will hopefully successfully coexist in the uh, in the months and the years to come. So uh, timely is today's headlines, and uh, we always strive to uh, to stay timely in those regards. And, of course, if you want to check out all of our other episodes, you can, of course, go to goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's our website. Uh, and you're going to find all of our hundreds, uh, hundreds. Yeah, we're in the hundreds now. We can say that uh, with, uh, with credibility uh, of episodes. Plenty of stuff there for you to choose from and find and across all kinds of sports and teams and leagues. Lots more to come. Uh, but that is the best place to keep in touch with us. Again, that's goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just check us out there early and often, sign up for our newsletter, send us some an email, and our social media sites. Please, by all means, follow us on all those places. Uh, on Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. On uh, Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. And uh, you'll also find a Facebook page to us, just whatever i whatever means. Feel free to follow us there, and uh, we appreciate you doing so. And we also appreciate our good pal, Jerry Payne, and his friends at Podfly Productions. And uh, we thank him and them for helping us with our production uh, needs each and every week. And if you want to find out more about their production and directorial efforts and all the stuff they can do to help you get into podcasting, if you're interested, by all means, check them out at podfly.com. Net. I am done. I appreciate. Thank you so much. The uh, ticket window is now closed. Until next week, we'll see you. Bye-bye.